0: Chapter 25 The Christian and the Taking of Oaths We consider now verses 33 through 37 containing the fourth of the six examples and illustrations which show what our Lord meant when he defined in verses 17 through 20 of this chapter the relationship of his teaching and kingdom to the law of God Having laid down the principle he proceeds thus to demonstrate and to illustrate it But of course he is concerned not only to illustrate his principle but also to give specific and positive teaching. In other words, all these detailed matters are of great importance in the Christian life. There may be those who ask, Is it profitable for us, confronted as we are by vast problems in this modern world, to be considering this simple matter of our speech and how we should be speaking to one another? The answer, according to the New Testament, is that everything that a Christian does is most important because of what he is, and because of his effect upon others. We must believe that if everybody in the world today were a Christian, then most of our major problems would simply vanish out of sight, and there would be no need to fear war and such horrors. The question is then, how are people to become Christian? One of the ways is that they observe Christian people. That is perhaps one of the most potent means of evangelism at the present time. We are all being watched, and therefore everything we do is of tremendous importance. Thus it comes to pass that in the various epistles which are included in the New Testament canon, not only in those of the Apostle Paul, but in the others also, the writers invariably have laid down their doctrine with regard to the various details of life. In that great epistle to the Ephesians, after Paul has risen to the heights and given us in the first chapters that amazing conception of God's ultimate purpose for the whole universe and has transported us into the heavenly places, suddenly he comes back to earth and looks at us and says to us, in effect, lie not to one another, speak the truth always. But there is no contradiction there. The gospel is, as Wordsworth says of the Skylark, true to the kindred points of heaven and home. It always presents doctrine, and yet it is concerned about the smallest details of life and of living. In the words we are now going to consider, we have an illustration of this. As we have seen, this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is framed by our Lord to expose the sham and the falseness of the Pharisees and scribes' representation of the Mosaic Law and to contrast it with his own positive exposition. That is what we have here. He says, Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. Those exact words are not to be found anywhere in the Old Testament, which again is a proof that he was not dealing with the Mosaic law as such, but with the Pharisaical perversion of it. Nevertheless, as was generally true of the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes, it was indirectly dependent upon certain Old Testament statements. For instance, they clearly had in mind the third commandment, which reads like this, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Also Deuteronomy 6.13, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. And also Leviticus 19.12, which reads, As ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. The Pharisees and scribes were familiar with those scriptures, and out of them they had extracted this teaching. Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. Our Lord is concerned here to correct that false teaching, and not only to correct it, but to replace it with the true teaching. In so doing, he brings out, as he always does, the real intent and object of the law as given to Moses by God, the law that is therefore binding upon all of us who are Christian and who are concerned about the honor and glory of God. Once again, we can approach the subject under three main headings. First, let us look at the Mosaic legislation. What was the purpose of these various statements, such as those as I have just quoted, with regard to this matter of forswearing or taking of oath? The answer is undoubtedly that its main intent was to place a bridle upon man's proneness, as the result of sin in the fall, to lying. One of the greatest problems with which Moses had to deal was the tendency of people to lie to one another and deliberately to say things that were not true. Life was becoming chaotic because men could not rely upon one another's words and statements. So one of the chief purposes of the law at this point was to check that, to control it, and as it were, to make life possible. The same principle was true, as we saw, of the commandment with regard to divorce, where, in addition to the specific object, there was a more general one also. Another object of this Mosaic legislation was to restrict oath-taking to serious and important matters. There was the tendency on the part of the people to take an oath about any trivial kind of matter. On the slightest pretext, they would take an oath in the name of God. The object of the legislation was, therefore, to put an end to this indiscriminate, glib oath-taking, and to show that to take an oath is a very solemn matter, something that must be reserved only for those causes and conditions where a matter of exceptional gravity and unusual concern for the individual or for the nation was involved. In other words, this enactment was concerned to remind them of the seriousness of the whole of their life, to remind these children of Israel especially of their relationship to God, and to stress that everything they did was under the eye of God, that God was over all, and that every part and portion of their life must be lived as unto Him. That is one of the great principles of the law which is illustrated in particular at this point. We must always bear in mind, as we consider all these Mosaic commandments, the statement, I am the Lord your God, ye shall be holy, for I am holy. These people had to remember that everything they did was important. They were God's people and were reminded that even in their talk and conversation, and especially in the taking of oaths, everything must be done in such a way as to realize that God was looking upon them. They must therefore recognize the great seriousness of all these matters because of their relationship to Him. The teaching of the Pharisees and scribes, however, which our Lord desired to expose and correct, said, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. In our consideration of the general principle, we saw that ultimately the trouble with the Pharisees and scribes was that their attitude was legalistic. They were more concerned about the letter of the law than the spirit. As long as they could persuade themselves that they were keeping the letter of the law, they were perfectly happy. For example, as long as they were not guilty of physical adultery, they were all right. And the same thing again applied to divorce. Now here it is once more. They had so construed the meaning and so turned and phrased it in a legal form that they allowed themselves ample scope to do many things that were utterly contradictory to the spirit of the law. Yet they felt they were free because they had not actually broken the letter. In other words, they had confined the whole purpose of the enactment at this point to the one question of committing perjury. To commit perjury was to them a very serious and solemn matter. It was a terrible sin, and they denounced it. You could, however, take all kinds of oaths and do all sorts of things, but as long as you never committed perjury, you were not guilty before the law. You see the importance of all this. Legalism is still with us. All these matters are highly relevant to ourselves. It is not at all difficult to see this self-same, legalistic attitude towards religion and the Christian faith in large numbers of people today. It is to be found in certain types of religion, and it is obvious on the surface, in nearly all creeds. To illustrate the case, let me point out how obvious it all is in the typical Roman Catholic attitude towards this matter. Take their view of divorce. Their attitude is stated in their written principles. But suddenly in the newspaper, you see that a certain prominent Roman Catholic has been granted a divorce. How does it happen? It is a matter of interpretation, and their claim is that they are able to prove that no real marriage had taken place. By subtle arguments, they seem to be able to prove anything. You find the same thing in every other type of religion, even at times among those who are strongly evangelical. What we do is to isolate a certain thing and say, to do that is sin, and as long as you are not doing it all is well. How often have we indicated that this is the tragedy of the modern view of holiness? Holiness and worldliness are defined in a manner far removed from biblical usage. According to some people, to be worldly seems to mean going to a cinema, and that is the sum total of worldliness. As long as you do not do that, you are not worldly. But they forget pride. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, pride in ancestry, and things like that. You isolate and confine the definition to one matter only. And as long as you are not guilty of that, all is well. That was the trouble with the Pharisees and scribes. They reduced the whole great question to one of perjury only. In other words, they thought there was no harm in a man taking an oath at any time as long as he did not forswear himself. As long as he did not do that, he could take an oath by heaven, by Jerusalem, and almost by anything. Thus they opened a door for men to multiply oaths at any time or with respect to any matter whatsoever. The other characteristic of their false interpretation was that they drew a distinction between various oaths, saying that some were binding while others were not. If you took an oath by the temple, that was not binding. But if you took an oath by the gold of the temple, that was binding. If you took an oath by the altar, you need not keep it. But if you took an oath by the gift that was on the altar, then it was absolutely binding. You notice how in Matthew 23, our Lord poured his scorn and ridicule, not only upon the version of the law therein displayed, but also upon the utter dishonesty of it all. And it is good for us to observe that our Lord did do this. There are certain things in connection with the Christian faith which must be treated in that way. We have all become so uncertain of principles in this loose, effeminate age that we are afraid of denunciations such as we read here and are almost ready to condemn our Lord for having spoken about the Pharisees as he did. Shame on us! This utter, rank dishonesty in connection with the things of God is to be exposed and denounced for the thing it is. The Pharisees were guilty of this in distinguishing between oath and oath, saying that some were binding and some not, and the result of all this teaching of theirs was that solemn oaths were being used commonly and lightly in conversation and with respect to almost everything. Let us now consider our Lord's teaching. The same contrast is here again. I say unto you, here is the legislator himself speaking. Here is the lawgiver. Here is one standing absolutely as a man among men, yet he speaks with the whole authority of the Godhead. He says, in effect, I who gave the old law am saying this to you. I say, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these, cometh of evil. What does this mean? The first thing we must do, perhaps, is to deal with the situation as it confronts us in a concrete example. Members of the Society of Friends, commonly called the Quakers, have always had a great interest in this paragraph, and it is on the basis of this that they have always traditionally refused to take an oath, even in a court of law. Their interpretation is that this is a complete and absolute ban upon the taking of an oath in every shape or form and under any circumstance whatsoever. They say that our Lord said, Swear not at all, and our business is to take His words as they are. We must examine this position, but not because the matter of taking oath in a law court is that which is dealt with here. Indeed, I am not at all sure but that those who interpret the passage thus have not quite unwittingly and unconsciously placed themselves almost in the ancient legalistic position of the Pharisees and scribes. If we reduce this whole paragraph to taking an oath in a court of law, then we have concentrated on the mint and anise and cumin and have forgotten the weightier matters of the law. I cannot possibly accept their interpretation for the following reasons. The first is the Old Testament injunction which God laid down legislation as to how and when oaths should be taken. Is it conceivable that God could ever do that if it was His will that man should never take an oath at all? But not only that, there is the Old Testament practice. When Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, he first of all extracted an oath from him, Abraham, the friend of God. That holy man Jacob extracted an oath from Joseph, Joseph extracted an oath from his brethren, and Jonathan asked an oath from David. You cannot read the Old Testament without seeing that, on certain special occasions, these holiest of men had to take an oath in a most solemn and serious manner. Indeed, we have higher authority for this in the passage which describes our Lord's own trial. In Matthew 26 63, we are told that Jesus held his peace. He was being tried by the high priest. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Our Lord did not say, You must not speak like that. Not at all. He did not condemn his using the name of God in this manner. He did not denounce it on such an occasion, but seemed to regard it as perfectly legitimate. Then, and only then, in response to this solemn charge, did he reply. However, let us also consider the custom practiced by the apostles, who had been taught these matters by our Lord. You will find they frequently took oath. The Apostle Paul says in Romans nine one, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. And again in 2 Corinthians one twenty three. I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. That was his practice and custom. But there is a very interesting argument based on this whole matter in Hebrews 6.16. The author at that point is trying to give his readers assurance and strong consolation, and his argument is that God has taken an oath in this matter. For men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. God therefore confirmed it by an oath. In other words, in referring to the practice of men taking an oath, he shows how an oath is a confirmation to man and puts an end to all strife. He does not say it is wrong. He accepts it as something which is right and customary and taught of God. Then he proceeds to argue that even God himself has taken an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. In the light of all this, the case for not taking an oath in a court of law as based upon this scripture is something which indeed seems unsatisfactory. The conclusion we can come to, based upon the scripture, is that while oath-taking must be restricted, there are certain solemn vital occasions when it is right, when it is not only legitimate, but actually adds a solemnity and an authority which nothing else can give. That is the negative view of our Lord's teaching. But what does he teach positively? Clearly, the first thing that our Lord wants to do is to forbid the use of the sacred title always in the matter of swearing or cursing. The name of God and of Christ must never be used in this way. You have only to walk the streets of a city or sit in its trains or buses to hear this being constantly done. It is utterly and absolutely condemned. The second thing he absolutely forbids is swearing by any creature, because all belong to God. We must not swear by heaven or earth or by Jerusalem. We must not swear by our heads or by anything but by the name of God himself. So these discriminations and distinctions drawn by the Pharisees and scribes were utterly ridiculous. What is Jerusalem? It is the city of the great king. What is the earth? It is nothing but his footstool. You cannot even determine whether your hair be white or black. All these things are under God. Also, the temple is the seat of God's presence, so you cannot differentiate between the temple and God in that way. His very presence is in that Shekinah glory. Those distinctions were quite false. Furthermore, he forbids all oaths in ordinary conversation. There is no need to take an oath about an argument, and you must not do so. Indeed, I go further and would remind you that he says no oaths or exaggerated avowals are ever necessary. It must either be yea, yea, or nay, nay. He calls for simple veracity, the speaking of truth always in all ordinary communications and conversations and speech. Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil." All this is a most solemn matter. We can see its relevance in this modern world and life of ours. Are not most of our troubles in life due to the fact that men and women are forgetting these things? What is the main trouble in the international sphere? Is it not just that we cannot believe what is being said? Lying? Hitler based his whole policy upon it and said it was the way to succeed in this world. If you want your nation to be great, you lie about it, and the more you lie, the more likely you are to succeed. One country cannot believe another. The oaths, the solemn pledges, no longer matter and no longer count. But it is not only true in the international realm, it is equally true in our own country and in some of the most sacred associations of life. One of the great scandals of life today is the appalling increase in divorce and infidelity. To what does it do? It is that men have forgotten the teaching of Christ with regard to vows and oaths and common veracity and truth and honesty in speech. How like these Pharisees and scribes we are. Men on political platforms have waxed eloquent on the sanctity of international contracts. But at the very time they were speaking, they were not loyal and true to their own marriage vows. When Hitler lied, we all held up our hands aghast. But we seem to think it is somehow different when we tell what we call a white lie in order to get out of a difficulty. It is terrible, we think, to lie on the international level, but not, apparently, when it comes to a matter between husband and wife, or parents and children. Is not that the position? It is the old fallacy. The temple, nothing. The gold of the temple, everything. The altar, nothing. The gift on the altar? Tremendous. No, we must realize that this is a universal law and principle which runs from top to bottom and covers the whole of life. It applies to us also. The message comes right home to each one of us. We must not lie. And we are all given to it, if not always, in a bare-faced form. What a terrible thing perjury is to us. We should never dream of it. But surely, to tell a lie is as bad as perjury, for as Christians, we should always speak as in the presence of God. We are His people, and a lie, which we may tell to a private individual, may come between that individual's soul and its salvation in Christ Jesus. Everything we do is of tremendous importance. We must not exaggerate or allow people to exaggerate for us, because exaggeration becomes a lie. It gives those who hear a false impression. All that is involved here. Once more, let every man examine himself. God have mercy upon us in that we are so like these Pharisees and scribes, trying to distinguish between big sins and little sins, lies and things which are not exactly lies. There is but one way to deal with all these things. I am not exhorting you to indulge in morbidity or encouraging what might be called morbid scrupulosity, but we must realize that we are always in the presence of God. We claim we are walking through this world in fellowship with Him and with His Son and that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Very well. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, says Paul. He sees and hears everything, every exaggeration, every suggested lie. He hears it all, and it hurts and offends. Why? Because He is the Spirit of Truth, and there is no lie anywhere near Him. Let us then listen to the command of our Heavenly King, who is also our Lord and Savior, whom when He suffered, threatened not, and of whom we read that there was no guile found in his mouth. Let us follow in his steps and desire to be like him in all things. Let us remember that everything in our lives and conversation is in his presence and may indeed be the thing which will determine what others will think of him. Swear not at all. Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil.